0: Everybody, Good morning. glad you're here this morning with us. Am I on? Is my mic on? <laughs> yeah, oh, there I am. Good morning. Now that we're official, glad you're here at Wyoming Valley Church. If you're a regular, thank you for coming. If you're a mem- if you're a uh, visitor, I couldn't think of the word. Thank you for coming as well. We welcome you, everyone is welcome here at Wyoming Valley Church. I just want to mention once again that next week we will have the chili cook off following the sermon following the message, so please plan to stay for that, and please plan to lose, because I should tell that to myself. (laughs) Anyways, if you have your Bibles, join us in Ephesians chapter 4 this morning. We've been going through this series in the book of Ephesians, and it's been really good for my soul. I hope it has for yours. We're exactly halfway through Ephesians, so we're going to start chapter 4, look at the last three chapters. Does anyone remember the title, the theme of our Ephesian studies? anyone want to say that out loud? Are you confident, Amy? You said that like a person who wasn't confident. (laughs) Lifestyles of the rich and godly is the theme through the book study of Ephesians. We're going to look at chapter 4, verses 1 to 6 this morning, and we're going to call the title of the lesson today, Walking Worthy of Our Calling. We're sort of going to springboard on what Pastor Mel taught us last week from Ephesians 3, verses 14 to 21. Did you ever have to prove your interest or care for someone or something? Did you ever have to prove your interest or your care for someone or something? I don't know if you were like this growing up, but with Christmas presents, uh, my, myself, my brother, my sister, every year would sort of, be at this time of the year, be begging our parents to get us certain things for Christmas, things that we really wanted, things we couldn't live without. There were certain toys we just had to have or we weren't going to make it. So we'd be begging our parents around October, probably every day until Christmas, saying, please, this is what we want, please get this for us. Sometimes our parents would get us exactly what we wanted. And just like every kid, you sort of lose interest in that thing after, you know, a couple days, two, three, four days. A couple weeks maybe at most. Well, my mom was a a chronic, I guess the opposite of hoarder, whatever that is. She loved throwing stuff away. So my mom would see sort of a toy that she got us for Christmas kind of neglected for weeks. And she'd say to me, I'm going to throw this toy away. And I'd be like, no, mom, you can't. I love this toy. I asked for this for Christmas. I love this toy. She's like, "Well, Todd, I haven't seen you play with this toy for a long time." And I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, I love it. I do. I love it." And then I'd like start playing with it right in front of her to prove to her, like, "Look, oh, look how fun it is. I love this." And she'd be like, "Okay, I'll, I'll keep it for a little while longer. But if you don't play with it, I'm going to throw it away." So I had to sort of prove to my mom, "I love this toy. Don't throw it away." I wasn't really that interested in the toy. I just, I don't know. I, I guess I was sentimental, but I didn't want to throw my toys away. And so I had to prove to her that I really loved that toy, at least for the day. I also have done this in the course of my life. I don't know if you're like this. I'm not really a, a hoarder or a sentimental person, but there's one thing I kind of find myself hanging on to. Pairs of jeans. I don't know why. I have probably ten pairs of jeans I probably wear, two. Um, I don't know if you're like this. And Janine, from time to time, will be working her way, her way through the closet and trying to save space, and she'll come to me and go, You have a lot of pairs of jeans. Can we throw some of these away? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, we could probably throw a few of them away. So she's going through them all. She goes, what about this pair? And I'm like, oh, you can't throw that pair away. No, 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 that's the pair I'd mow the lawn in. That's crucial. Got to have that pair, right? I'm not just going to wear my good jeans doing that. She's like, okay, well, what about this pair? I'm like, oh, no, that's my comfy pair. She's like, it's full of holes. I'm like, yeah, I know. I wear that when I want to be comfy. She goes, I've never seen you wear it. I'm like, well, I don't have the opportunity. But one of these days, I'm going to wear those jeans. And then she's like, "Well, what about this this pair? It's acid wash." And I'm like, "No, those are my '80s jeans. <laughs> what about '80s night? I got to have those for my '80s night." And so I'm trying to prove to my wife that I need all ten pairs of jeans, even though she knows eight of them. At least I've never worn in the last four or five years. But are really you like that with things? There's another another example I'll give you. Um, when I was engaged to Janine, I have permission to share this story, by the way. When I was engaged to Janine, um, something odd happened. Around the three or four month mark that we were engaged, it was around Christmas time, and someone in our church had like a litter of kittens, and they were looking to give the kittens away, just give them away to whoever wanted one. Well, Janine sort of volunteered to take a kitten, but her family already had a cat, so she came up with this plan that I should take the cat. For the six months we were still waiting to be married and sort of take care of the cat, and then by the time we were married, she'd come in and we'd have a cat. And I was like, oh, a cat, huh? Now, I had had two cats in my previous part of my life, but it was never a cat. I never asked for a cat. One year, I asked for a laptop. I got a cat. The cat had some issue and died, and I was dating a girl at the time. She thought I was broken up about that, because you must be. She replaced the cat. So I had a couple cats in my background. I think Janine knew that and thought, this guy must be a cat guy. So she said, yes, we'll take the cat. And what she meant by will is, he'll take the cat. And then she came to me and sort of said, you know how you're going to vow your love to me and you know how we're going to be married for the rest of time? Yeah, you're going to watch our cat for six months until we're married. And so I had to sort of prove myself, even before marriage, that I love Janine. I let her name the cat Duke because she's a Duke fan. I'm not a Duke fan even. I'm a Michigan fan. We should have called it like Wolverine or Loser or Overrated or something like that. That would have made sense for Michigan. Anyways, did you ever have to prove your interest or care for something? I don't mean to lighten the mood, because what we're going to look at today is along that same tone, but much, much more serious. Let's find ourselves in Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 6. I want you to listen to the word of God. This is what Paul says. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Amen. Let's pray one more time before we enter to the teaching of the Word. Father, we just ask for your help today. We need your help to understand this. We need your help to appreciate this, Father. Help me and help the souls here to open our eyes and our hearts to the truth today. We ask for your Spirit's help, and we give all glory to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We have four goals we want to look at today under this title of walking worthy of our calling. Goal number one is very simple, is to understand what our calling is as Christians. What is our calling? It may be obvious. It may be plain as day to you already, but it's something we have to understand what our calling is in order to walk according to that calling. So that's goal number one. What is this calling? Goal number two, to know why we should walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Why? Now that we know the calling, what's the reason? What's the point? Goal number three is to know how to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. We need to be instructed, and Paul's going to instruct us, on how to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, if that's something we desire. And goal number four is to be motivated. Motivated by our oneness with God in the church, in the body of Christ, in order to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. So we have four goals. What is our calling? Why should we live according to that calling? How do we live according to that calling? And what's the motivation behind that? Our four goals today. So number one, what is our calling as Christians? I had to look at the word calling to understand what Paul is talking about. This version is a noun. The word calling means this, a strong urge toward a particular way of life. A strong urge toward a particular way of life. Is Christianity a way of life? You better believe it is. In fact, it's the way of life. Jesus said he's the way. He's not a way. This is the only way of life. This is the only way toward life is following Jesus Christ. So we're going to look at what our calling is, which is a strong urge, which is a word Paul uses. He says, I urge you. It's a strong urge toward a particular way of life or a career. For the first three chapters in Ephesians, if you've been with us, Paul has been laying this foundation. He's been laying this foundation of our union with with God, our acceptance into God's family, our adoption into God's family through faith in Jesus. For three chapters, he has been laying this foundation to a good church to say, remember what you were realize what you are now and for three chapters he's gone over that because he doesn't want to assume that anyone in the church is crystal clear on that. There may be some who are still foggy on that and Paul for the three chapters has laid that foundation so we understand this because what he's going to do now is flip the page. He's going to turn the page and he's going to exhort us for the next three chapters on what to do. And Paul, this was a common writing technique he used. In most of his letters he did this. For the first part of the book he lays the foundation of the gospel, tells you who you are and what has come to you and what Jesus has done in your soul. That, therefore, for the next half of the book, he can exhort you based on what you've learned. And so that's what he's going to do. He's going to turn the page here and he's going to start to exhort us to do things. And he wants us to be crystal clear on two things. This is the foundation he's laid. Number one is that to God belongs all the glory for our life and our hope. He has gone over that in great detail to say to God belongs all the glory for our life and hope. And number two, that through Jesus alone, we find this life and hope. It's pretty simple, isn't it? Two really big goals. To give God glory and to remind us once again that it's only through Jesus that we find this life and hope. And now Paul's going to transition, as we said. For the remaining three chapters, he's going to exhort us towards devotion, towards obedience, and towards love based on that fellowship we have with Jesus. But we have to understand what our calling is. If we don't know what our calling is, there's no way we can live according to that calling. right? If we don't know what our calling is, there's not a chance that we'll do it. We might guess, but we could be wrong. So Paul is going to tell us once again what our calling is. And this calling is a general calling for all Christians. Okay, It's not like the calling I received when I became your pastor. That's a specific calling to me. The calling Paul is referring to is a common calling, a general calling for every single person who names the name of Jesus. So if that is you today, if you say you're a Christian today, this calling is for you. It's for me. It's for everyone who says they're a Christian. Okay? And so Jew or Gentile, male or female, whether you grew up religious or not, if you name the name of Jesus, this is your calling. And the calling is quite simple. Three things. We are called to live as children of God. Live as children of God. Number two, we are called to live as citizens of heaven. And number three, we are called to live as ambassadors of Jesus Christ. Right there. That's our calling. As Christians, we're called to live like children of God, citizens of heaven, and ambassadors or representations of of Jesus Christ upon this earth. That's a big calling, isn't it? Look at that. Is that a big calling to live like a child of God? To live like a citizen of heaven and live like a representation or ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ? And this calling is for every single Christian. I wanna remind you what Paul said in Ephesians chapter two, listen to the language. After he tells you what you were and what you are now, listen to what he says in verse 19. There's the calling, the calling that Paul has called us to, the calling that God has called us to. As God's children, we are God's children, we are citizens of heaven, we are Christ's ambassadors. I would say as a Christian, that's our job title, our job description. God has hired every single one of us to work for him. Now, yes, we are his children. We are heirs of the riches and the inheritance of Jesus Christ. But God has also, you could say, hired us, called us, if you will, to do something. And this calling, this job that we're going to talk about today, is our primary job. Okay, this isn't alongside of what you do in your normal job. You're whatever you are. You're a, you're a person that works with tools. You're a person that's a carpenter. You're a person that works at a bank. And you're also a Christian. No. It's quite the contrary. If you're a Christian, you are a child of God first and foremost. You're a citizen of heaven first and foremost. You are an ambassador of Jesus Christ first and foremost. So, it's important to listen to what our job description is, isn't it? If that's our primary calling, our primary job, we need to know what God describes as our calling. And this calling is our purpose now that we are in Jesus Christ. Everyone who has faith in Jesus has the exact same calling. I have this calling, you have this calling, and this calling cannot be dodged and it cannot be avoided. If we dodge this calling, we don't have true faith in Jesus. It's that simple. If we say today, I'm not interested in the calling, I just want the eternal life. They don't come separate, they come together. If you are a Christian and you are awaiting eternal life, this is your job, this is your calling, just like it is mine. And God has called us to do and to be something on the earth and this role is incredibly important to God, to his name, to his kingdom. This is validation. It's validation of what you claim to be. If you say, I'm a Christian today, you have to back it up with your lifestyle, with your calling. And this calling is made clear. It's made clear today. It's made clear all the way through Scripture for all Christians. This, cl- this calling is crystal clear in the Word of God. It's not just Ephesians. We're not just emphasizing one little ounce of Scripture here. This is all over Scripture. You can go to any book and find this calling And we have to remember this. We have to remember that at one time we were dead in our sins. Paul told us that. One time we were following the devil. We were separated from Christ. We were far off from God and awaiting God's wrath for our sinfulness at one time. And now look at our calling. Children of God, citizens of heaven, and ambassadors of Jesus Christ. Do you see what happened there? We went from the worst case scenario to the best case scenario. And Paul is going to remind us of that today so we could be motivated by the fact to live out our calling. Because now we are forgiven. Now we're saved. Now we're cleansed. Now we're adopted. Now we're brought near to God through the blood of Christ. And that needs to be a privilege, not a chore. This calling is not a chore. If it seems like a chore, something is wrong in the soul. It should be a privilege when we understand where we were before and where we are now. Now, I'm going, to be, I'm going to be honest with you guys. Being a pastor is hard. It's a hard calling. Being a pastor is more difficult than I thought it was going to be. But you know what? It's a privilege. And you know the primary reason it's a privilege? Not because I love you guys, because I do. And that's also a privilege. But you know why the, the main reason it's a privilege is because of where I once was. What I once was living for. What I once claimed as my God. The sins that I was practicing every single day. The fact that I'm now a pastor is a privilege. And that needs to be understood so we understand today that this calling is a privilege. It's not a chore. For you to be a child of God, for you to be an ambassador of Jesus Christ, for you to say, I'm a citizen of heaven, should overwhelm you based on what you once were. And if it doesn't feel like a privilege, if it feels like a chore, something's wrong. Something's off in the soul. Something's off in our perspective and that needs to be changed. We need to see that today and hopefully we can, that this calling is a privilege because we don't deserve this calling. Do you know what we deserve? Eternal punishment for our sins. Myself included. Every one of us deserves that from our God. But what did we get instead? We get to be his children. We get to be citizens of heaven. That's amazing. I'm not even sure I know how amazing that really is. But I can say confidently, and so can you if you're in Christ, you're a citizen of heaven. You don't belong to this earth. Isn't that a good thing? This earth is getting bad. But we're citizens of heaven. And we get to serve our Lord. I get to be a representation of Jesus Christ to this world. Doesn't this world desperately need to see who God is? Don't they desperately need to understand the love and the hope found in God? I get to represent that. And so do you. That's your calling. To represent to this world what it means to be a child of God and a citizen of heaven and an ambassador of Jesus Christ. Is serving God a chore to you today? Is serving Jesus a chore? Does it feel like that sometimes? We need to remember this. We need to remember that the one we're serving is the one who died to free us from sin and hell. That has to be stated a lot because that's the motivation. That's the primary motivation for who we serve. The one who died to separate us from hell and sin. We went from high treason to the king of kings to a child and an ambassador of that king. Do you understand the calling today? Do you understand that that is what Paul is calling us to? God is calling us to? You are called to represent God's name. And there's no greater purpose in the history of time than that. God's name. So that's our calling. That's our goal. That's our job title as Christians. Number two is why should we walk in a manner worthy of our calling? Why should I? I'm busy. I got a lot going on. Life is hard. Why should I walk in a manner worthy of our calling? Well, the wise are actually all over Ephesians. And we'll pause here in a little bit if we have time and remember the wise, But I need you to explore scripture, explore your own heart. The whys are easily found. They really are. You just have to look. The wise are all over Ephesians. If you just read through Ephesians, which we've encouraged you to do, if you read it today, the wise will smack you right in the face. We've been saved. We've been forgiven. We've been made alive. We've been adopted. We've been given eternal hope, life, and security. All those are motivations, aren't they? All of them. But the reason Paul is bringing up is the primary reason because he says, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord. The word therefore is important because he's basically saying, I'm building on something I've just said. I had an old teacher say this. He says, when you see the word therefore in Scripture, you should find out what it's there for. (laughs) It's just an easy way to remember it, right? And so we have to remember what Pastor Mel spoke on last week on the great love of Christ because that's the springboard for what Paul is saying today. That's the primary motivator, the love that we have received from Christ. The way he described it was the breadth, the length, the height And the depth of Christ's love, the love that surpasses our ability to comprehend it, right there. That's your motivator for living according to your calling, the great love of Jesus. God has lavished his love upon us through Jesus. He held nothing good back from his children, nothing. Everything that God considers a treasure and a riches is yours if you're in Jesus, everything ounce of it now you may not experience every ounce of it till the other side but it's yours it's your inheritance it's your treasure and the love of Christ is so unrivaled and so profound but we have to remember this too it's so costly to give us do you remember what it cost to give us these riches do you remember what it cost God to lay down his son so that we could have these riches do you remember what it cost Jesus to march to Calvary with his cross and die on that cross, that's what it cost to give us this great, intense, profound love. It also costs God, God, something else. I talked about this in the podcast this past week is that when God says he loves us and opens up this love to us, that leaves God vulnerable. I'll explain a little bit. When you tell someone you love them and you care deeply for them, they might not return the favor. They might reject your love. You could say to someone, I love you. I care about you. I I want to spend the rest of my life with you. And they might say, I don't care. I don't want you in return. God has opened this love to mankind and countless people have said that to God. I don't care. I don't want you. God has displayed his love to the people of this world in creation, in the gospel, in the representations of Christians upon the earth. And many people are still saying to God, I don't want you. And that leaves God vulnerable. That leaves God open to pain, open to hurt. But you know what? He does it anyways. God opens himself up and lavishes his love upon mankind anyways because he knows the power of that love. He knows the motivation that love can have in the soul. If some will look at that love and consider that love, it will melt their heart. And they will say to God, I love you too. I love you too. I will give my life for you. Many in this room have done that. But many haven't. And many will refuse him and continue to hurt him. But God took that risk. God opened himself up to vulnerability and said, look at the degree I love you. I'm going to tell you, it's the breadth, it's the length, it's the height, it's the depth of my love through Christ. It's beyond your ability to comprehend it. Because he knows some of us will be touched by that. Some of us will be spurred on by that love to lay our lives down for Jesus Christ. And if we are able to know that, ex- that love by experience, we know this motivation is true and pure. It is. That's what I'm motivated by every single day, that it's hard, and it is hard in the Christian life. It is. It's full of thorns. It's full of risk. It's full of people hating and hurting you. But I'm motivated by the love of Christ. I've always been motivated by the love of Christ. And Paul is not asking for anything unreasonable. He's simply asking that we walk in a manner worthy of what Christ has done for us. Can we accept that as fair? I'm asking you to walk in a manner worthy of only what Christ has done for you and nothing beyond. Whatever he gave to you, live worthy according to that. Is that fair? That's the definition of fair. That's exactly what fair means. He's basically saying our calling matches the love we have received. Now, what is that love? It's incredibly deep love. Incredibly profound love. I'll ask you a couple questions, okay? What's proper to give someone when they give you a big present? Thank you? Can we at least say thank you to someone who has given us a big present? People have done that for our family. I think what's proper is to say thank you. Thank you for this big present. That seems proper, at least. What about if someone risks their life to save you? I don't know if that's ever happened to you, but it's possible. What would be proper then? Lifelong friendship Loyalty, kindness for the rest of your life to someone who risks their life to save you? Well, what about when someone dies on a cross? What about when someone absorbs the hell that was meant for you? What's proper then? Paul's going to say the only thing that can come close to matching that love is your entire life every ounce of you because it's your calling because it's fair because it's proper for someone who absorbed your hell who died in the cross who shed his blood the only thing that's fair the only thing that's proper is our entire lives and that's our calling and that's a high bar that is a high bar but you need to understand what the calling is and you need to understand what the motivation is it's the love of Jesus And if you understand that calling, then nothing is too great to ask of those who have been redeemed, who have been forgiven, who have been made alive by the blood of Jesus. Nothing is too great to ask of people who have been spared eternal punishment, who have been adopted into God's family, who are waiting to be heirs of the riches of Christ. Can you ask anything too great? Nothing. Nothing is too great to ask of those people. In fact, the one who was asking us, Paul, the apostle Paul, also lived worthy of the calling he had received. He's not asking us to do anything that he wasn't able to do or willing to do. Where is Paul when he's writing this? He's in prison. Why is he in prison? Because he spoke about the gospel to every creature he could find. And it put Paul in a lot of hot water with a lot of people. And he's in prison saying to the Ephesians, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And I bet that made a mark to go, Paul's definitely doing it. We know where Paul is. Paul was one of those guys, right? You just look at Paul and go, wow. He says in verse 1 here, I'm a prisoner for the Lord, and I don't think Paul is boasting. I think he's trying to inspire the Ephesians to remember to the lengths and the depths he went to in order to live out his calling. To say, listen, where am I? What, what am I doing this very hour? Where am I writing this letter from? I want that to inspire you, Ephesians to live out your calling as well, to go to every limit possible to live out that calling. Now, I know this is a high bar. This is a lot easier to say than do. Even as a pastor, I could say this today. We can all agree with it. We can all walk out those doors and none of us will do it because it's difficult and it's costly. This calling has to be set before you and the motivation has to be very near to you every day in order for you to live out this calling. But Paul is only asking us to do what is fair, what is right and what is proper in regard to the love we have received to do what Paul has already committed himself to doing. Because this, this this equation right here, huge love should equal radical devotion. Would you agree with that? If we've received huge love and we have, the love cannot be calculated. I cannot sit down and figure out to what lengths and what heights and what depths this love reaches. But I know it's massive. I know it's huge. And huge love should equate, for every single one of us, radical devotion. And I want you to look at your life today. What level of devotion does Jesus have from you? Now, if you were a pretty good person, if you weren't really a big sinner, if you were just kind of bad, if Christ did a little bit for you, then a lukewarm, flaky love would make sense. But is that, is that the reality for anybody? Isn't everyone saved from the depths of hell? Isn't everyone saved from the blackness of their soul? Isn't that what Paul said? You were all dead in your sins. You all followed the devil. You all We're children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Then why are there only some people who are radically devoted? Why aren't we all? It's because we don't understand the huge love. We don't understand the great need we have. That has to be the reason. Because if we did, we would be radically devoted. What is Jesus worthy of? That's the question. What is he worthy of? What present or amount of thanksgiving and gratitude do you wish to give to Jesus when you see him someday? What would be proper to go up to the Lord who's bearing the wounds of your salvation and say to him or give to him? What would be proper? Thanks? Is that enough? Appreciate it? Or to say to Jesus and back it up and say, you have my life, all of it. Whatever you ask, you have. Whatever you want, I'll give it. Isn't that fair? I think that's fair. And I want you to love your calling. I want you to love your calling. I want you to find it as a privilege to follow Jesus Christ that way. And I hope we've been impacted by the book of Ephesians. I want to now recap the first three chapters very briefly, very quickly. Because I wanted to impact us once again. Remember what the first three chapters of Ephesians taught us. Chapter 1 said this We have received every spiritual blessing from God through Jesus. That's you. You have received every spiritual blessing from God through Jesus if you have faith in Christ. Going on, we are awaiting Christ's inheritance. Christ's inheritance is coming to you because of your faith in Christ. Number three in chapter one, we have eternal hope. There are people in this world that have no hope. We have eternal hope. We have hope that can never be removed. We have hope that beyond the grave, we will be okay. We will be happy. We will be blessed. We will be alive for all of eternity. And we have been given God's immeasurable power to accomplish his will upon the earth. God says, live your calling, get her done, see in heaven. No. Here's everything you need. I will be with you every step of the way. You will never be alone. You will never have to fight on your own. I will be there. I will give you my power every step of the way. Is that a blessing? Amen, it's a blessing. And that's just chapter one. That's chapter one. Let's go to chapter two. After Paul told us we were dead in our sins and awaiting God's wrath, he says, Now we are alive in Christ and saved from our sins. Boy, if you know what death was like spiritually, if you remember that time in your life, you know how sweet spiritual life is. I remember that. I remember when things were so grim in my soul. I thought it was done. I thought it was over. I thought God couldn't take me from that point and clean me up. And he did. And I remember that, because now I'm alive in Christ Jesus. He said, we are waiting to be raised up with Christ in heaven for all of eternity. Wow. You one day will be raised with Christ, seated in heaven for all of eternity. If you have faith in Jesus, if you live according to your calling. He says, even though we used to be strangers to God and to his promises, we have now been brought near to God through Jesus. Now you're close to God. You and God can be intimate. You can be close. You can have a fatherly son or daughter relationship with the God of the universe. You've been brought near by the blood of Jesus. God has given us his peace. And we are citizens of heaven and members of God's eternal family. Citizen of heaven. Just think about that phrase. Citizen of heaven. Your name is recorded in heaven. You have a place. You have a seat. It belongs to you. You will always be there. You are a citizen of heaven. And God considers you a son or daughter. That's chapter two. Chapter three, Paul goes on Gentiles, every non Jewish person, was once an outsider. All of us were outsiders, not God's people. That's what the word Gentile means. But now God has included us in his plan and adopted us into his eternal family. God brought the Gentiles in and said, I love you too. I want you with me as well. He promised to bestow upon us the unsearchable riches of Jesus. I love these phrases. They're just so romantic sounding. I don't really know how to understand that, but I know it's mine. Because God says so. It's in his scripture. He's promised to bestow upon me the unsearchable riches of Jesus. And God wants us to be strengthened with his might and to know the love of Christ that surpasses our ability to comprehend it. Do we have an amazing God? Do we have an incredibly loving God? Can anyone match that love in your life? Not even close. And do you see why we should be ready and willing to walk worthy of our calling? Do you see why? Are you inspired yet? Are you motivated yet to go, yes, I get it. I understand. My calling is obvious. Who could love Jesus more than that? Or who could love us, excuse me, who could love us more than Jesus? The answer is nobody. Not even close. And you've been hired and I've been hired by God to serve in his kingdom, which happens right now. We don't have to wait for heaven to serve God's kingdom. I can do it on the earth. In fact, I'm called to do it on the earth. That's why. That's the tip of the iceberg. But that's why we should live according to our calling. And number three, which assumes we all want it, which we have to just assume that because I don't know if you do want it. But we're going to assume because we're now going to look at how do we walk in a manner worthy of our calling because Paul instructs us. Look at those five things up there. Paul instructs us based on the calling we've received to now teach us how to live according to that calling. If we desire to, and if we're ready to walk according to this calling, then Paul's ready to instruct us. He's ready to teach us. He's going to say to us today, do these things. Be this way. And that will be you fulfilling your calling upon the earth. Okay? These things are not mind-blowing things. They're obvious. But they need to be mentioned. The first one is with all humility. With all humility. See, pride cannot exist in the heart and the mind of the person who understands that everything they've been given is a gift. Everything you've received from God is a gift from God. Pride cannot exist in the soul of that If we've been given everything good from God when we rightly deserved his eternal anger and wrath, if we've been given eternal life and forgiveness and life and hope, then pride cannot exist in the soul. Pride is the evidence of someone who simply doesn't get it. They don't understand it. If we're prideful, we have no idea what we were. We have no idea what we've been given from God. Pride is like a drowning person who's dragged ashore and then boasts in their swimming skills. You were drowning. But Paul says you weren't drowning. You were dead. Just to take it to another measure. You We're dead. There's nothing you did. There's nothing you could have done. You received everything from God as a gift. How can pride exist in the soul who understands that? It can't. It can't. If we became righteous on our own, that would make sense. If we became eternally rich on our own, we could pat ourselves on the back. But nobody did. Not one person picked themselves up by their own bootstraps. Every single person received righteousness and life and hope from God as a gift. If we were eternally doomed and God simply spared our lives by his mercy and kindness and gave us all of his love and riches, then pride makes no sense at all. It just doesn't. It doesn't make any sense in the life of the Christian. I can't say I've conquered pride, but it doesn't make any sense when I show pride in my life only when I show humility. If there's anyone that should be humble upon the earth, shouldn't it be Christians? Shouldn't it be people that have the proper perspective of what they were and now what they are in Jesus Christ? Shouldn't we be the authors of humility upon the earth? When we boast, and we should boast, let it only be in the Lord. Let us only boast in the Lord. Because humility... And that kind of boasting go hand in hand. When anyone wants to give you credit, when anyone wants to give you praise, return it to the God who actually deserves it. Are you humble in your speech? Are you humble in your service? Is there anything that's too low for you? That's too low for me, I can't do that. I can't serve in that way, it's too low. That's pride. Jesus made himself nothing. He took on the form of a servant. That's what Philippians says. He became nothing, it says. Is anything too low? Is there anything I shouldn't be able to do? If I understand what I am before God, then I should be able to go as low as possible. And that's what humility means. It doesn't mean your worth is low. It doesn't mean your value is low. Your value is astronomical in God's eyes. But we are willing to take on the position of a servant because of what we've received from God. That's humility. Paul says to go along with that, we should be gentle. He says, with gentleness. I think gentleness and humility go along together perfectly. They're like a team, right? If you're humble, you should be gentle. And if you're gentle, you should be humble. Because those who are prideful are harsh people. They're sharp people. They're severe people towards others. People that have pride are people you don't want to be around. They're harsh. They're severe. But those who have been overwhelmed by the great love of God in their lives as a free gift are the most humble people and gentle people you could ever meet. You ever met somebody like that who is so in tune with God's love and so in tune with the gospel that they're just so humble? They're so so gentle. I think when pride exists in the soul, something is terribly wrong. And gentleness is another proper fruit of the Christian. It's a proper fruit of someone who has been treated gently by God. We should be gentle because God dealt gently with us. He could have destroyed us. He could have sent us to a place called hell, but he dealt gently with us while we were sinners. God dealt gently with us. And he's teaching us a lesson right there. You too should be gentle. You should give gentleness to others. Because every day, not just with the gospel, but every single day, God extends his gentleness towards us. And I know that because we're here. If God wasn't gentle, none of us would be here. We just sang about it. God is rich in love and he's slow to anger. Amen? If God is quick to anger, who's here today? None of us. But God is slow to anger. He asks that we only give to others what he has given to us. You see, it should take a lot to make a redeemed Christian deal harshly with anybody. It really should. It it should take a lot for us to get to the place where we deal harshly with anyone. It should take such a level that we really can't get to it. Because if God dealt gently with us while we were sinners, there's no time in our life that we should ever be harsh or severe or prideful with someone. See, God dealt gently with us, and now that we are cleansed and holy beings based on Christ's blood, he's still deals gently with us, and I'm thankful for that gentleness. And so are you gentle and kind? That's simple. It doesn't seem mind-blowing, but it's so profound. We need more people like that, don't we? I need more gentle people in my life, and I need to be that kind of person in other people's lives. We just do. Gentleness goes a long way. Kindness goes a long way. I have enough severe people in my life. I need more gentle people, and so do you. Who should be those people? The people in this room. The people that understand what we receive from Jesus Christ should be the most gentle and humble creatures in existence. And then Paul says with patience. God again was patient toward us. These are things he is towards us that he's asking us to be as well. Wasn't God patient toward us? We had amassed enough sin on our accounts for God to swiftly damn us for all of eternity. But did he? No. God waited for the plan of the gospel to come to our soul to eventually heal us and restore us. And you know what happened during that period? God took a lot of pain because we kept sinning and kept sinning and kept sinning until finally the love of Christ was shed abroad in our hearts and we changed our relationship with sin and said no longer. I don't want to hurt God anymore. But that was a long process. Think about the process in your life. This is probably 20-some years of my life to God where God had to be patient with me. To say, let's trust the process. Let's trust the plan. Christ is going to come into his soul. He's going to redeem his soul. And he's going to change his relationship with sin. How long was it for you that God gave you patience? Do you notice this, that nobody's patient anymore? Doesn't it seem that way? No one can handle any sort of delay. Right? I'm kind of that way sometimes, if I'm honest. It's like I can't handle any delay, especially on the road. If, so, if the light turns green and I have to sit there a second and a half, I'm going to honk my horn. Really? With all, the, with all the time savers we have, we should have so much time left at the end of the day, yet we're, we still can't handle a second and a half delay because we're not patient. We all have road rage right next to us. We all need to work on patience, don't we? All of us. This world needs patient people. And we get patience by looking at the one who was patient toward us. That's how we get it. If you think life is frustrating, if you think driving on the road is ridiculous and frustrating, remember the patience that God showed you. That will help. Maybe not honk the horn. Maybe go, oh, it's okay, take your time. Get off your phone, then you can drive. Because <laughs> God d- dealt with us so patiently. And patience proves that we have a relationship with God because we've learned God's divine patience toward our soul, that God is slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. Those are some of the greatest traits about our God. Slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. If we're not patient and we're easily annoyed and frustrated and we have a short fuse, who are we learning that from? It's not God. God is not that way. If we are quick-tempered, If we are easily frustrated, who are we learning that from? It might mean we're not near God enough. Because God is not that way. Are you patient? The next thing he says is bearing with one one another in love. God can ask us to love one another because he first loved us when we were unlovely creatures. You see, love has always been the plan of God. From the beginning of time to the end of time, and there is no end. So love will always be God's plan. It's kind of the direction of the household. If you're a child of God, loving one another is the direction that your father has put the household in. In fact, if we don't buy into loving one another, we have no proof that we are in Christ. We have zero proof. Remember 1 John? How many times he talked about love? Over and over and over This is your validation. This is your validation. Love one another. That's how you know you actually are in Jesus. And yes, love is costly. There's no way to get around it. Listen to how Paul phrases it. Bearing with one another in love. He doesn't just say love one another. Bearing with one another in love. It means it's hard. It means it's costly. It means it's going to take work and going to take sacrifice to love people who aren't always lovable. Doesn't that take work? Doesn't that take patience? Doesn't it take sacrifice? But when we look to Jesus and we see God's love toward us in the exact same fashion, then we remember why we should love one another. No matter where you go in Scripture, find a page, find a chapter. Love will be shouting at you. Love. Love. Love one another if you want to not waste your life and live a life that is pleasing to your Lord, it starts and it ends with faithful, sacrificial love. We cannot emphasize love enough. Are you striving to love your church? Are you striving to love Wyoming Valley Church? How can we dodge that and say to God on the other side, thank you for your love? How can we? The answer is we cannot. We cannot. We must love one another if we have been so greatly loved. The last thing he says is eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Paul's going to take it one step further than love even. Not only should we bear with one another in love, but we must strive for unity Unity, and we're just going to touch on this topic today because it's going to continue in chapter 4. We're not going to be able to get to it to great degrees, but we're going to touch it today. Strive for unity for the sake of all of us living according to our calling. Because of this, we can't live according to our calling alone. Do you know that? I can't do it alone and neither can you. We have to have each other. If you want to live according to your calling, and I hope by listening to this today you say, Yes, I'm in. You have to have one another. I need you, and you need me. We're called to do this thing in community. That's how God designed it. We need to strive for unity and oneness in the church because it's evidence that we understand that the church is our eternal family and that this church has been given to us to accomplish God's will. I want to accomplish God's will, but I can't do it alone. I can't do it without my church, and neither can you. There's no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. There's no Rambos out there, okay? There's no Jason Bournes winning the world by themselves. No. There's only family members and teammates. None of us are living on a Christian island. We all need community. We all need one another. This is why gathering together is so crucial. I can't do it without you. I've tried. I tried to be the Lone Ranger Christian. I'm not good at it. That's on purpose. Have you committed your life to helping God's people live out their calling and vice versa? Because we need one another. In order to be humble, gentle, patient, and bear with one another in love, I need you people. I need you to remind me of these things. I need to remind you of these things. Every day, every week. Very quickly. Almost too quickly, we have to touch on this last one, the last motivation Paul gives us that we will look at again next week because this is going to be continued. This is one thought that we're breaking up today. But he says, number four, to be motivated by our oneness to God in the body of Christ. See, Paul already motivated us by the profound love of Christ. Now he wants to motivate us by the fact that we are one in Christ. And I want you to listen to verses four to six together. Listen to how many times the word one comes up. Okay, listen. He says in verse 4, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Seven times he mentions the word one so that sticks in our mind to go, Oh, we're one. We're one. We're not little separate entities, we're one entity. Paul wants us to know that we are in the exact same family, with the exact same life, with the exact same foundation, with the exact same Lord, through the exact same means, with the exact same calling. From the exact same God, who has the exact same mission for every single one of us. You see, our union together is eternal. Whether we want it or not, I'm one with you and you're one with me. We're one together. We have so much in common. We have more in common than my twins have in common. I'll say it that way. And my twins have a lot in common. They share a bed. We tried to separate them. They want to be together. My twins have a lot in common, as you might expect. There's a lot in common between Titus and Levi. Based on what I've learned from Ephesians, I have more in common with you and you with me than my twins do in the flesh. Look at that. Look at how much we have in common. And the devil's so masterful. He loves to point out the little minuscule differences we have and go, see, you're not like each other at all. Look how different you are. Look at these little differences you have. And we overlook these massive similarities that we have. Because the devil has to divide us. He can't beat us when we're one. He can't. We're too big. We're too strong when we fight together. So he's got to pick us apart. And the way that he picks us apart is by saying, look how different you are. Oh, you don't think the same way. You don't like the same things. Oh, they think that's important and you think that's important. Now nah, you're so different. And we forget the massive similarities we have in Jesus Christ. And as soon as he divides us, he wins. He defeats us. But he's lying. He's lying. His lies are so that we don't fight together and don't see the obvious strength and numbers we have against him. Because he knows it's true. He knows we're bigger. Our kingdom is bigger. Our kingdom is stronger than his kingdom. Why does the devil seem to be gaining ground sometimes then? If if our kingdom is bigger and our kingdom is stronger, why does it look like he's gaining ground against us? Because we're listening to the lies. We're the victors. And when we all unify and we're all motivated by the fact that we're going the exact same direction for the exact same reason, then the devil is going to lose ground. It's a guarantee. Imagine if all Christians, even one small body like Wyoming Valley Church, unified together for the sake of fulfilling our calling as children of God, citizens of heaven, and ambassadors of Jesus Christ. What would be possible if we all came together for that goal? What would be possible? Sky's the limit. If we imagined this, that we were capable of looking past our least, less insignificant differences for the sake of our massive similarities. We could make some real advancements against the devil's kingdom. And it would drive the devil insane if we did that. It would drive him nuts. If we actually unified and came together and put away the lies and said, we're one, we're going to fight together, we're going to help each other, he would lose ground right away. We have to be unified, though, in order for that to happen. And I want to say this today. Come on, Wyoming Valley Church. If you're not already, get on board. We need you. We're limping along without you. We need every single one of us to come together in order to fulfill every one of our callings, which are the same calling. You can hold me to it, and I can hold you to it, and I need you to hold me to it. I have four applications, but I'm going to combine them down into one because of time. And it's very simple. Are you living according to the calling you've received in Jesus Christ? I don't ask if you come to church on occasion or read your Bible on occasion. I don't ask if you have a Jesus fish on your car or a cross around your neck. I don't ask if you can pass a test on some doctrine. Are you living according to the calling you have received from your Lord Jesus? That's the only question. If not, why? Why? What else would Christ have to do for you in order, in order for you to say yes to him finally and say, you got my life, Jesus. I don't seem significant to you, but i will lay down my life for you if that's what you want. And he does want it. And if you are living according to your calling, press on, carry on, pray for those in your life, pray for your church, pray for your pastors, pray for your family members, pray that more of us get on board so that we can see our huge similarities. We can come together as one and we can all live out our calling because of this fact and this fact alone, Jesus is worthy. That's it. That's all I got for you today. Jesus is worthy. I hope you'll pray with me right now. Let's pray and ask God for help. God and Father, I thank you for everyone here. I thank you for what you've taught us today. I thank you for the calling we have received, which is a privilege. I hope we can see that today. Father Paul said in chapter 3 that he bows his knees before the Father. And he pleads with you to open the eyes of the Ephesians to see the love of Jesus greater. Father, I ask that for Wyoming Valley Church. Open our eyes to see the love of Jesus greater. Because when we do, we will buy into our calling. We will unify together. We will live like children of God, citizens of heaven, and ambassadors of Jesus Christ. This world needs it, and you are worthy of it. I thank you for the opportunity to teach us today. I pray that we would all walk away from here more inspired, more motivated, more instructed about how to live out our calling. And we give you all glory and praise for it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.